0: This show is for you.
1: We promise to bring you real and authentic conversations with parents and experts who are committed to making their family, their life's most important work.
0: This show will help you take a stand for your family and to raise your children by design, not default. Hello everyone. Uh, As always, Chris and Melissa Smith here, but this week uh, we are really uh, stoked and uh, excited. We have a special guest with us, uh, Michael Hyatt. So Michael, welcome to the Family Brand Podcast.
2: Hey, thanks, Chris. Melissa, great to be with you.
0: So, you know, we have the opportunity. One of the coolest things Melissa and I always say about the podcast is the people it's allowed us to connect with. That was kind of an unintended consequence. We were just excited to do the podcast, and then we've been able to meet so many great people because of it and have really, you know, incredible conversations. So, Michael, it's kind of an interesting backstory. I am an advisor to a company that I've talked about before on the podcast, and they told me that, hey, there's another advisor you know to this company his name's you know michael hyatt and i was like well I've, i know who michael hyatt is you know he's a new york times best-selling author i was just reading um your book you know how to have your best year ever at the time and so i'd known about you and i'd known that we were both advisors of this company but never had the chance to meet michael until recently i think january we went to austin for the i think that's right yeah and so i i was really excited and uh, melissa and i got to sit through an all-day workshop that michael facilitated that was incredible and we wanted to have Michael on to talk about his new book, uh, Mind Your Mindset, and this idea that success starts with your thinking. And it was so funny because so much of what Michael shared is just principles and philosophies that have changed my life. And you know, Michael and I realized we have a lot of overlap around leadership and 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 story and 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 the mind. So I'd love to actually ask you, Michael, because I find myself saying it all the time lately to people: you sh- you should have to mind your mindset. You have to take control <laughs> of your mind. You know, I'm using the title of your book, and I've been telling everyone about your book. I'd be curious to, to hear, why did you, how did you guys land on that as the title, Minding Your Mindset or Mind Your Mindset?
2: Well, it's, it's funny because, um, first of all, I wrote this book with my oldest daughter, Megan, who's the CEO of our company, Full Focus. She's been a CEO now for about two years. And so I'm still active in the business, but more in an advisory role as the chairman of the company. But uh, initially the title of the book, and we kind of saw this book as a prequel to all the work that we do. Because almost in every book I've written, every workshop I lead, every keynote I, I give, I us- usually start with some mindset component because I know how important our thinking is to the results that we get. So initially, we wanted to call the book. And in fact, we had the cover designed. It was up on Amazon. My publisher put it up on Amazon. And it was called It's All in Your Head. But then as we started to kind of Get some preliminary feedback from our audience. There were a lot of people that felt that that was really condescending, like sort of dismissive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like something you would say to your spouse when you're in a in an argument. You'd say, "Well, that's just all in your head." Mm-hmm. You know, so it's kind of a negative thing. So we said, "Wow, well, that wasn't what we had intended." So let's go back to the drawing board, and we came up with "Mind Your Mindset," which um, maybe is not as provocative, but is is perfectly descriptive of What it is we think everybody needs to do
0: yeah it's interesting i uh i was telling someone this and the mind is the mind is wild you know when you to put it mildly it can just run with whatever it wants to run with and it will run left if you don't mind your mindset if you're not and i think i didn't know that for the longest time michael i didn't know that i could or that i actually even needed to kind of take control of my mind so i just i just let it do what it did and It would serve me all these thoughts that didn't serve me. And I just kind of thought, well, that's just life. And you grind through and you you try to overcome these limiting beliefs and thoughts. And it hit me recently. I've been alive for 41 years. And I can't remember one time in 41 years where my mind, when I was just kind of letting it run, I can't remember one instance where my mind on its own said something to me like, man, Chris, you're a great husband and father. Chris, you really matter. You really make a difference. Not not once. Now, I've intentionally put those thoughts in, but yeah. my mind on its own, it feeds me thoughts all the time, like, oh, you're probably not doing enough. You probably should be better. You're probably not as, you know, that great. And it's just kind of wild how how wild the mind is left to itself. So, anyways, I just love the the title in itself is there's a lot of wisdom, and you have to, you have to mind your mindset, or it'll do, do what it wants.
2: You do, and I think that one of the things we have to understand and appreciate is that our brain is basically there to keep us safe, which means that it's, it's like an alarm system in your house. You know, it's uh, focused on threats and breaches, and it's always looking for the next thing that could, you know, pose uh, as an existential threat. So because of that, that's why you don't have those thoughts just random because they don't really serve a purpose in protecting you. You know, they might long term psychologically, but in the short term, you know, it stays focused on threats. It's busy doing its job. And so we have to inform it. And we talk about in the book this concept of the narrator. And it's like we all have this voice inside of our heads. For some of us, it feels like a committee, but there's this voice inside of our heads that's constantly trying to interpretate, interpret, interpretate. Did I really say that? Interpret <laughs> the facts of our existence. So you know we experience a fact, and then our brain immediately begins to come up with a sort of story to explain that, and ask the cell and ask, ask itself the question: Is that a threat? Should I be worried? Do I need to take evasive action? Is there something else I need to do? So I think learning to distinguish between facts and the story that we build based on the facts; those are two different things, and the narrator shows up in our in our brains. Uh, by giving us sentences in our head. And these sentences are often disempowering because again, they're trying to keep us in our comfort zone so that we don't venture outside of that where there is risk and threat. Mm. And once we understand that, then we can begin to take control of our minds and realize that, okay, the facts are the facts, but the story is optional. The story can be changed and there could be a more empowering story or a less empowering story. I had this this dear friend of mine named Dan, he grew up Amish. And I may have told the story in Austin when we were together. But Dan, um, he, he stood up on stage one time. I heard him speak, and he stood up on stage, and he said, you know, I grew up in this religiously oppressive home. Uh, we weren't allowed technology. We weren't allowed to interact with people outside of our close-knit community. Um, things were just incredibly boring. boring. I felt like I was deprived of so much that the world has to offer, and I was given this sheltered life that didn't really prepare me for the world. And then he pauses, and then he says, or I grew up in this amazing, tight-knit community where I learned the value of family and community, and we weren't distracted by technology. We didn't have all this media streaming into our house. Instead, we had these amazing deep conversations around the dinner table we played board games with the family our neighbors were there for us when we needed them we were there for them when they needed us and so it was just an amazing background you know to be to be to grow up in that kind of of tight-knit community which is all but vanished but one of those stories is empowering and one of those is disempowering mm. but the facts are the same it's how you interpret the facts
0: Yeah, I think you and I talked about this a little bit in Austin, but one of the big realizations I had when I was crawling out of my hole of hopelessness and despair, you know, 14 years ago, and Melissa and I were separated is this, this realization, like my life is made up of the stories I'm choosing to believe. Yes. And, and I didn't realize I was choosing to believe them. Again, I just thought it was all being done to me, you know, like that I had no control over it. And not only is one of those stories empowering and one of those stories disempowering, I also see for Dan, one of those stories. I'm a victim to all of my circumstances and I have control over nothing. And one of those circumstances is no, my life's exactly as it should be, which is actually a really empowering thought because I can do something about it.
2: That's right. Yeah. I think, you know, where I first, uh, began my education on the importance of our thinking as it relates to our success is I had an executive coach. This was back during the recession, about 2009. And we'd been working together for several years. And so I knew my thinking was important because the the entire premise of her coaching program was that if you want bigger, better, extraordinary results, you got to think bigger, better, extraordinary thoughts, because your thoughts are what inspire your actions or lead to your actions and your actions are what determine your results. So if you want to create different results, you got to go upstream from that. And begin to tinker with your thinking. So in the middle of the recession, she flew in to spend the day with me and she came in once a month and we spent the entire day together. And it was about 75% psychotherapy and about 25% business coaching. And, uh, so she said, well, Hey, how did last month turn out now? I'm a CEO at this point of a large public company. And, you know, we're like everybody trying to struggle in the, the recession and, you know, trying to make it all work in the midst of this uh, very volatile economy. And so she said, how did last month turn out? And I said, wow, not that great. She said, well, what happened? And I said, well, we missed our revenue projections, our sales projections by about 10% on the top line, but it really rippled through to the bottom line and we lost money. She said, wow. She said, well, when I was here last month, you were so confident that you were gonna hit the budget and you felt that you really had a good chance of exceeding it. And I said, I know, I know. She said, so what happened? And I said, well, really three things. And of course, what she didn't know is I was preparing for a board meeting where I was gonna get asked some similar questions. So I kind of, you know, outlined it, knew where I was gonna go with this. So I said, well, first of all, there's the economy. The one thing we know is that we're in an incredibly volatile economy. Foot traffic at retail, retail bookstores is down. People just aren't going to shop right now. Consumer confidence is at an all-time low. In fact, I quoted her. The statistic, which I can't remember now, but it was at a very low point. I said, second, we're in the midst of an industry, the book publishing industry, which is uh, undergoing a profound revolution in terms of moving from print products to digital products. And that didn't go so well for the music industry. And we had a front row seat to it living here in Nashville where we're recording this. And so I saw a lot of my friends lose their jobs, lose their companies, record companies went under, studios closed. It was bad. We didn't know maybe that was going to be us next in the book publishing industry as digitization became more popular. And then I said, the third thing is that we're really contending with social media right now, because all the traditional stuff that we used to do with marketing, it just isn't working like it used to. And uh, we haven't figured out social media. We don't even know if that's a viable marketing mechanism, but we're kind of stuck. And she said, okay. She said, but what was it about your leadership? That led to this result. And I did not like that question at all. And, uh, I, I felt like she was blaming me and she was trying to say it was my fault and so I got pretty defensive and I said, Eileen, it was her name. I said, Eileen, I said, I just got done explaining to you three, I think pretty compelling reasons, any one of which would have accounted for the the results. Kind of the miracle is we did what we did. And she said, no, I mean, I get that was a factor, but what was it about your leadership? And I was exasperated at this point. She said, okay, let me just, let me just come at this from a different angle. She said, if you could go back 30 days, knowing what you know now, would you have done anything differently? And I said, well, absolutely. She said, well, like what? I said, well, I would have met with the sales team every morning to talk about how, how were sales going just so I could see the trend and make sure that we were on pace to hit the budget or exceed it. She said, okay, great. What else? I said, I probably would have gone on the sales call with our team to Walmart and then to Target, because I think as the CEO, I could have had some influence in terms of the amount, the number of books that they, they bought. I think I'm a pretty good salesperson and I could have amped up the response. She said, okay, what else? So I gave her like three to five different reasons. And so then she sat back and smiled and she said, so what you're telling me is that it was about your leadership. And I just went, wow. Okay. Guilty as charged. And, and to your point, I felt like, you know, I was having to take responsibility for something, and that felt a little bit scary. And again, the, the brain is trying to protect me. And But what, what I did in the midst of that, and we do this all the time in every area of life, including families, we disempower ourselves. Because as long as the problem is out there, it's external to us, we're the victims. We can't do anything about it. It just is. You know, we just have to kind of float on this current and it's going to take us wherever it's going to take us. But once I accepted responsibility and said, okay, it is about my leadership. Now, all of a sudden the power came back. The bad news was I had to own it. The good news was that I could finally do something about it and I could change my leadership in the next month and thereby impact the results, which is exactly what happened.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. And I love that. I love that chapter in the book of that section where it talks about out there versus in here. You know, and because as long as it's out there, I really can't do anything about it. And once it's in here, but you're right, that is scary. It's a scary prospect, even inside of a family that when something goes wrong or something's off, it's a scary thought to say, well, I'm 100% responsible because it feels like you're shouldering a lot of maybe like, you know, blame or, or, you know, consequences. However, the empowering part is if I'm 100% responsible, I'm also 100% capable Yes. That's what I, you know, that's kind of how I've been that's the story I started making up in my head if, if I'm 100% responsible, then I'm also 100% capable of doing something about it and that to me is pretty empowering. It's like, wow, I'm 100% capable of changing my life. I'm 100% capable of changing my business. I'm 100% capable of leading my family. That's an empowering but it stems from being 100 I have to first be 100%
2: responsible. Totally. And I, you know, it's is it really interesting. I was telling you before we you both before we came on that you know i have five grown daughters no sons uh several son-in-laws but five grown daughters and uh 10 grandkids and they all live within this vicinity so gail and i my wife gail and i were going to be speaking about family recently and so i was doing a little research and i had this practice where i take one of my adult daughters uh out to lunch every week and i'd go through a rotating basis so every five weeks we start the cycle again so i was out with my daughter Madeline. And I said, Madeline, I said, this is going to sound a little bit self-serving, but, but I, I hope you'll understand. I'm trying, I'm trying, I know full well what I did wrong as a dad. So like, that's no surprise. Cause everybody reminded me as in real time as it was happening. <laughs> and, uh, and I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I was, you know, like, like so many entrepreneurs, like so many business owners. I was, uh, all my focus, all my energy, all my creativity was exclusively, uh, focused on my business. And it wasn't really focused on my family. So there were, there were a lot of years, particularly when the girls were young, that I just didn't have any concept of really giving my, my intention to developing my family. But I said to, to Madeline, I said, I know all the things I did wrong, but what was it if there was anything that we did right? Because I think it's pretty amazing that we're in such great relationships with each other and you all are our best friends and we all live with so close to one another. And I said, I don't think that would happen, but I don't. I'm not sure why it didn't happen. So I said, "What do we do well?" If, if if you can think of something, she said, "Dad, I think the biggest thing was, you took responsibility. You and Mom both took responsibility when you screwed up, so that if you overreacted to one of us girls, or you spoke a harsh word to Mom in our presence, you owned that, and then you apologized for it. And I think I learned from you to i 'I'm sorry.'" Will you please forgive me? Hmm. And, and that was like one of those things that I, I wouldn't have thought of, but I was glad to hear it from her, but I think it's, it's, it's right. And I learned this from Eileen, my executive coach initially, but you have to take responsibility. That's mm-hmm. key.
1: Yeah. I think I've been enjoying hearing you and Chris go back and forth that I'm going to jump in here. And I think that is so important. I think for the longest time, I felt like, uh, as a family we would it would the best thing would be to get to a place where we weren't having any conflict but as as i'm learning and drawing it is i think inevitable that that is going to happen but i think the important thing is like you're saying is that each person is taking responsibility and saying like i'm sorry and that's it's in the repair of that that real bonds are formed and and relationships strengthened um I have a question for you about like your mindset, because we have one of our sons. We were just having a conversation just a couple of days ago about this, trying to teach him about this, uh, taking responsibility and, you know, for his mindset, for what's happening out there, um, taking responsibility inside of himself for what's happening. How would you how would you recommend teaching this to to a child, having raised five, five daughters, how would you, how would you recommend it?
2: Well, I, I think helping them understand how their brain works is important, that there's nothing wrong with how the brain works. It's, it's doing what it was designed to do, which job number one, you know, in Maslow's hierarchy is to keep us safe, right? So nothing wrong with what the brain does, but we have to realize the limitations and realize that that's not the only thing it can do. Mm. And so I think teaching them about the narrator, because um, so often we confuse the story, we actually label it with the truth. You know, we say this thing that happened, and this is the story, uh, it's, I, it's not my story, it's just the truth. No, it's your story. And what we know from brain science is that, you know, 20% of our, our thinking, 20% of our memories are just flat out false, up to 70% of our memories are distorted in some significant way. So there's a high probability that we don't have the story right. That should open us up. And this is the thing I would say to my, my kids is that um, that should open us to the possibility that maybe, just maybe we got the story wrong. Maybe mm-hmm. we, we've taken two plus two and we've gotten five or six or seven, but we've come up with an unwarranted conclusion based on the narrator trying to keep us safe, but there are other ways to think about it. Just like I was illustrating with my, my friend, Dan, there are other ways to think about what we experienced and we want to think about those. We want to be certainly truthful with the facts, but we also want to make sure that we're telling us, ourselves a story that is also empowering and that's going to serve us going forward.
0: I, I think that's really profound and I'm, I'm actually thinking about this particular child if we're we have five kids, so there's a risk that we might not be thinking about the same child since we have so many children. Uh, but I think I know, and you're right, I, I, you know, look, Melissa will be the first to tell you that my children get a heavy dose of my philosophy and my thinking, especially right now as I'm writing a book. In fact, when we were in Hawaii, this particular child goes, one day we jump in the car to drive somewhere and he goes, okay, here we go. Another conversation with Chris. He said, I'm going to start naming these drives, conversations with Chris. Because every morning I'd work on my book a little bit and then I'd share with them.
1: We'd get in the car and Chris would go real deep real fast.
0: <laughs> and uh, But you're right. I don't know that I've ever shared with this particular child or any of our children. And I think it's a really useful, and obviously you talk about that a lot in the book, how useful it would be for everyone to know, hey, your brain, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feed you a lot of things that actually don't serve you and actually are disempowering. and that's just your brain trying to do its job. Like that would be that's a right. useful thing to realize like, oh, that's just my brain. And there could be a possibility that your brain's trying to do its job. And in doing its job, it may not actually serve you all the time and it may not empower you, but you can you can catch that, right? And I think yes. that'd be really useful for this child because I think that's what comes up as it's, it's self-preservation a lot of times, you know, because we don't want to feel wrong. We don't want to be made to, You know, like we want to be right. We want to look good and we want to be safe.
1: I think it doesn't feel good sometimes to have to go there. Like you were saying with with Eileen to have to feel like, oh, I could have done something different or I don't know. It just I think it's easy to just push that away and be like, no, I don't I don't want to have to feel that. That feeling it's easier to like put it out there rather than to think like. I could, I have something to do with this outcome or that I could change or do something different.
2: One of my fundamental principles of leadership is the first and most important job if you want to influence other people is model the behavior you want to see in other people. So everything begins with modeling and it's really true as a parent. And I can tell you because I'm a little bit further down the road than you two uh, with five grown daughters that they will resist this stuff particularly when they're teenagers, you know, you get the eye roll and you know, there's, there's Chris or there's mom (laughs) or dad going off on this thing again. And, but I'll tell you what more is caught than taught. And if you interviewed my girls right now, they have bought into our philosophy, probably not a hundred percent, but about 90% hook line and sinker. And what's really gratifying and fascinating is to hear them just without our urging, teaching their kids the very things that we tried to teach them. And it wasn't that, that we sat them down and I got a whiteboard and we started mapping out the whole thing and I taught them stuff. No, it was just in the ordinary course of life. And I think it particularly is helpful as parents when we're vulnerable. So that, for example, you know, if your kid comes to you and you jump to a conclusion that you later, learn wasn't warranted. In other words, you took the facts of the story, you came up with a conclusion, and maybe even disciplined them as a result of that. But for you to be able to say in real time, you know what, I've reflected more on that. And I think, frankly, that was my own fear. And that, that that story was in my head, not in your head. And I think it was faulty in some significant way. So I, I just want to admit that to you. I want to ask your forgiveness. Because I don't, I don't think that's who you are or what you intended.
1: I love that. I love how you just modeled that. That's really beautiful. And I think you're right that That is really, like you said, that's one of the things that stuck out to Madeline. I think you said it was that um, of all your parenting is that you were able to do that.
0: Yeah. I love the quote more as caught than taught. Like your kids will always learn more by what they catch you doing than what they hear you saying. Yeah. And what, what's your, what's the quote? The parenting is made up of a bunch of. Because you said it's like it's just the things we do in just the ordinary course of
1: a million like insignificant moments that make up this journey of of parenting. Yeah, most of the moments are really insignificant, but it's like what you consistently show up as and do, I think is what makes the biggest impact sometimes,
2: and I think the other thing too is is that in our relationship with our kids, anything is repairable if we have the humility. And so Gail and I always had this philosophy of, we, we want to be direct, we want to be firm, but we want to do that in the context of love. And we want to, above all things, preserve the relationship. Now, you have to be careful with that, because sometimes you're so intent on preserving the relationship that you won't say the things that need to be said to take the relationship to another level. So there's, you know, if, you, if you're just going to be safe, you're like you'd never discipline your kids, you'd never correct them. But, you know, part of the reason kids have parents is they need that. They need that guidance. And so you have to speak into it. But you've got to always be sort of with, on, with one part of your brain speaking directly and being a corrective influence in their lives and giving them guidance. But on the other hand, constantly monitoring, sort of this is an emotional intelligence thing, monitoring the state of the relationship, you know, so that that's preserved, you know, above everything. Because your kids are going to do things that disappoint you. Your kids are going to do things that, you know, if, if it were you, you wouldn't have done it that way. You know, they're going to do things that probably anger you and all the rest. But all of that's repairable if you're committed to stay in the relationship and keep working it, uh, with it. And one of my fundamental, I guess, thoughts or principles is that conflict is not something to be avoided. Conflict is actually an opportunity. It's, it's the doorway to greater intimacy.
0: I love that. Were you thinking about high challenge, high support? What Michael say? Yes. So one of the things we talk about in, yeah, family brand is the high challenge, high support. And that's a tricky balance sometimes of, you know, when do I challenge? Which is, you know, and sometimes that looks like a tough conversation or a confronting conversation. And then how do I balance that with support and love? And I think to your point, as long as it's all done through love, the challenge and the support. You know, I love that. And so, okay. So I think this is fascinating. Five adult daughters. Uh, Two of them work in the business with, and, you know, Michael, for those of you who don't know Michael and his, his family, you know, they have a really impactful leadership development and consulting company with organizations, business coaching called Full Focus. Your daughter, Megan's the CEO of that, who co-authored the book with you, Mind Your Mindset. You have another daughter who works in Full Focus, Uh, 10 grandchildren, all five of his daughters, he was saying, and their husbands live with in a really short distance of them within Nashville. And the reason I bring all that up is one of the things that was really important to Melissa around our own family brand was how do we create relationships that last? It's really common that you see a lot of families. I would say the large majority of the families we see that as the children become adults and grown, they grow slowly more and more apart Mm -hmm. and they still might have the obligatory Thanksgiving together or the Christmas, but that's not, they're not really And I don't think that happens by accident. I think that happens by design. Do you think there's some things that you and Gail have done, Michael, that have contributed to, even though your daughters are married with their own children, their own families, that's contributed to you having relationships that last where you're still really close and connected? Because we want that for our own family. And I know so many families want that, but it's not the reality I, I seem to see in most families.
2: Yeah. I, and I would agree. I, th- I think it, it begins with, and this isn't part of what leadership really is, is it starts with initiative. So for example, I have to take the initiative to have a lunch date with each of my adult daughters. I have to take the initiative. One of the things we do with our grandkids is that when they turn 13, we take them on a week long trip, just the three of us. So it's Gail, me, the grandkids i mean it it sounds almost trivial it's only a week but the amount of bonding that happens that serves that relationship going forward is incredible and i think as as a parent you have to first of all realize that the goal of parenting is to deparent so the goal of parenting is to raise these kids so they don't need you and so they can be independent which means your role has to transition from being a parent to I think being a coach, to being really a trusted friend. And I would say that that's, that's kind of the posture that we're in with all of our donors now is we want to be the trusted friend, the person that, that provides a safe spot for them to land when, when there are troubles and a place where they can come and get, you know, the advice of a friend or just a listening ear. And, you know, that's enormously helpful. But I think as a parent, you have to create these opportunities to create connection. Mm -hmm. And whether it's a lunch date where it's just one-on-one, kids love that. They may roll their eyes. They may not want to do it. But if you're persistent with this and do it, it will make a difference. They will feel connected. And the things that my girls would tell Gail when they were growing up blew me away. I mean, the level of honesty and transparency about things that, would set most parents' hairs on fire. And and frankly, it did us a few times. But but the the fact that they were willing to reveal that was enormously helpful. We we did another thing that that two years ago, three years ago, that I wished we had done 30 years ago. And we bought a lake house. I I get that that's a privileged thing and not everybody can afford to do it. But I do think it illustrates a, a principle. We wanted to create a space where all the kids wanted to come all the time. Lots of things uh, to do, you know, a lot of water sport kinds of things to do. And it's amazing. Like we're now just, you know, it's just getting warm enough in the spring in Nashville that we're about to reopen the lake house and begin all that again. But I promise you every weekend, there will be some group of our family down there. And just, we have conversations in that context because it's relaxed. Nobody's going anywhere. We have deep, meaningful conversations that we would not have in any other context. So you may not be able to afford a lake house, but what could you do to provide for those, you know, those discussions, that kind of proximity and that kind of fun and shared experience where people want to talk? There's so I much love- there. <laughs> yeah, there's so much there. I want to comment on
1: a million to. places. And it is, that is really, really <laughs> beautiful. And, um, I guess just jumping back to your one-on-one, uh, lunch dates that you do, is that something that you've done, you know, throughout? Your daughters growing up, you mentioned that Gail would do, you know, have that one-on-one time too. Has that always looked like a lunch date or kind of what did that look like for your family?
2: Well, Gail and I have uh, pretty much always had a weekly date night together. So that was kind of where the idea came. And I I wish I could say that I did that with the kids when they were, you know, in high school or junior high. And I would have if I could go back and redo it. But that's something that I just started uh, after the kids became adults. And and frankly, you know, I had the margin in my life. I'd rearranged my work in such a way that, you know, I had room for life. And so that's part of our passion. In fact, the number one thing we do at full focus is that we're committed to to helping business owners win at work and succeed at life. So those two things. And we think that that they're so interrelated that the one serves the other. And if you do, if you both give attention to both of them you'll find that you have a business that scales or grows better, that's healthier, more sustainable, and you'll have a family that you look forward to going home to uh, when you're not working.
0: I love that. I don't, I don't even know if I've shared this with Melissa, but I've been thinking lately about this context of a business that wins and a family that works. Mm. You know, it's like, cause you wanna win in business, you know, and in, in win in a way where you're making a real difference for people and you're playing to win. And you also want your family to work. Like, you know, you love each other and you're connected. That's uh, awesome. I love this idea of the goal of parenting is to deparent and and the transitioner, the transition you go from is from parent to coach to trusted friend. And Melissa heard this analogy. We did a podcast about this one time. This great parenting analogy of the guy who's like a football analogy. When you first start parenting, you're you're the quarterback. You're not just calling the plays, you're actually out on the field directing the offense. And then over time you move to the coach with the clipboard, then you move to the sidelines as a cheerleader and eventually you're just up in the stands in the upper level, just cheering, you know, and like, but I like like this idea of parent, coach, trusted friend. I also think it's really interesting, as you said, we created a space where our kids want to come. And I think I shared this in Austin that some of the research we've studied, based on this research is pretty exhaustive, said that the number one desire of all humanity our, the number one value we all share is belonging. We want yes. to feel like we belong. And you can be in a family and not feel like you belong. You can not be in a family and feel like you belong. But that's what I hear when you say we created a space where our kids want to come. It's like we've created a space where everyone feels like they belong. And I think to your point, even if it's not a lake house, it's how can we create a culture of belonging in our homes where we create the space where just our kids just want to be there, like they want to belong or they feel like they belong. And I love the idea of these really intentionally created spaces like a lake house or tradition or, um, so I love that you've created that with your
2: family. Well, I mean, a simple way to do that that doesn't cost anything is have family meals together. You know, where no devices are permitted and you just have conversations. Like one of the things that we do around the table, uh, and we did do this all through the girls' lives is we would ask we would say, what was the best thing that happened to you today? Now, the whole focus of that was to, to really redirect their attention because part of what the brain wants to do is focus on threats, you know, the focus on the negative things that happen because they could become threats or maybe they represent threats. And so you have to redirect the brain. So the things that went wrong in your day are pretty easy to come up with. Uh, and in fact, I can remember one time uh, as I went to bed with Gail, She said to me, she said, how was your day? And we always check in with each other, usually at the end of the day like this. She said, how was your day? And I said, man, it was horrible. She said, well, what what happened? And so I began to explain the situation. I don't remember what it was now. But I went through it, and she kind of paused for a minute. She said, well, it sounds to me like you had really 20 minutes that were pretty bad, but the rest of the day was pretty amazing. Well, that's perspective. (laughs) And that was enormously helpful. But that's what we try to do with our kids around the table to say, you know, what was the best thing that happened to you today? And inevitably, almost every night, somebody would say, nothing good happened to me today. And so we would just gently stay with it. And we'd say, okay, just think a little bit more. Was there something, some little something that was good about today? And maybe they'd still be struggling with it. We'd say, okay, of all the bad things that happened, what was the least bad thing that happened? I mean, we just try to work with them to get refocused, you know, on something better. And that, that kind of training was enormously helpful. But I think where, where parents often get into trouble is they try to, to maintain one of those roles too long. Like they, they're, they're the quarterback for too long. They're, they're the person calling all the shots. And this is what drives kids away from their parents, is that now they're an adult, they're still going to make mistakes. But as a parent, if you approach that as a parent, as opposed to a, a coach or better, a trusted friend. Who wants to be around that? Yeah. You know, I don't be, I want to be around parents that are nagging me or that are constantly pointed out what I should have done instead of what I did. Yeah. You know, it just make me feel good. None of my friends would do that. So why would I associate with anybody that does that? Totally. So you've got to be the person that just listens, who asks good questions, like a coach who helps them come to their own conclusions who um, doesn't shame them when they fail, but is an encouragement and can continue to reaffirm their identity. They may have lost, but that doesn't make them a loser.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love, I love even back to the dinner time. Well, what was the least terrible thing that happened? <laughs> what you're doing too, though, is you're helping them start to train their own narrator. Yes. you know, and, and, and it's like, look, perspective, and this is a story. And even in adulthood, when you turn into that trusted friend, You can still very much guide and serve them around their mindset, but now you're doing it as a trusted friend, you know, instead of that parent. And I'm starting to believe one of the greatest gifts we can give our children is to teach them how to mind their mindset. And what, what, what greater gift could you give a child than they leave your home at whatever age they leave? And they're like, you know what? My parents weren't perfect, but they loved me. They accepted me for who I was. And they really taught me how to like control my mind and like be the, be the author of my own story, if you will. You know,
2: I, you know, I had to face this with in my own story because I grew up in a family where my dad was an alcoholic and I told myself a story for years that he was a loser, that he was lazy, all this stuff. So I had a whole story around it and of course didn't want to be around him as a result of that. And as soon as I could get out of the house, I did and didn't go back. But then I learned about when I was about 35, I was actually fishing with my dad. I went to visit him, which was always a chore. I didn't want to do it, but I went with him and we went fishing, which we both really enjoyed. And he told me the story of being injured in the Korean War. And uh, he wasn't making an excuse. He was just telling me a story, which he'd never done before. I'd asked him about the war before, but this time he really shared the story about how he had signed up for the Marines when he was 17. He had been shipped to Korea and arrived there when he was still 17. And about six months into his assignment there, he got hit with an incoming missile with the shrapnel from this missile, was in a coma for six months, developed all these neurological and physiological symptoms as a result of that. And is to this day, he's 89 years old, but he's 100% disabled as a as a war veteran. And um, that completely reframed, reframed it for me because, this all happened in a, in, the, in a world where we didn't have language like PTSD, mm. where there was no treatment for veterans. You know, he came home as a handicapped male needing to provide for his family, got married shortly after he returned and had a difficult time getting a job. But, but what happened to me is I developed compassion for him because I, I changed the story. And, and he changed the story for me by... Giving me those additional facts, I went, Oh, did I have it wrong? You know, and it didn't excuse his drinking, but it gave me compassion and realizing, look, that's all he had. He was he was doing his best to cope with his own trauma. And, you know, there were probably worse things he could have done. And there were probably, knowing what we know now, better things he could have done, but he didn't have access to those resources. So I can't judge him by the standards of today. I have to just have compassion. And try to understand
0: yeah thank you for sharing that's powerful um i know we're we're up against time here and i could i could talk i think we could keep talking for hours two really quick things michael that i'm curious about one is did you did you and gail with with your five daughters growing up did you guys have family values or sayings or little mantras that were important around your identity and just kind of the, the story you would tell as a family
2: Yeah, we we did. We didn't have like formal family values. In fact, we're in the process of doing that right now because we we really want to take responsibility for the generations to come and to develop a family brand, a family ethos, you know, that we can more intentionally, more consciously pass on down. And and a couple of the girls are engaged in this uh, process with us, but we would say things and Gail was famous for these. She would come up with things like when you lose your why, you lose your way.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, that was a good one. Or one of, her, one of her things that she would say all the time that at the time dro- drove the girls crazy, but <laughs> later became a mantra that they used with their own kids, she would say, wait to worry. You, know, can, you can worry later if you want to, but now it's too soon. And that was hugely helpful. And she's had to repeat that to me a few times as well. Or what does this make possible? We have some of these questions in the book by the way. But yeah. well, what is this situation, especially adversity? Okay, this this thing happened that we didn't expect. This thing happened that wasn't what we hoped, but what does it make possible? Well, that, that completely reframes it and and helps you to kind of move through it in a way that's positive and constructive.
1: I'm going to interject one question along these same lines here at the end. I'm so fascinated that you raised five daughters and I'm curious, like, and I know that a couple of them work in the business now with you, what narrative did you create for your daughters around, you know, what they were capable of and what they could do in the world, if that makes sense.
0: As far as like business.
1: Yeah. As far as business or going for their dreams or, yeah, making impact in the world. You know, I think that
2: was one of those things, Melissa, that was more caught than taught. And and frankly, for for all my dad's faults, one of the things that he did that was so amazing is that he would always say to me things like, you know, just subtle things like, well, you'll figure it out. You know, he just like expressed this confidence in me. Uh, I can remember in my first job after college, um, I was in the middle of some kind of adversity at work, something really negative that happened. So I called my dad and I was just telling him about it. And uh, my dad said, well, he said, son, I I had no idea how to fix that. But here's what I know for sure. You'll figure it out. Well, that that expression of confidence and capability and not rescuing me. Mm-hmm. If there's one criticism I have of much of modern parenting is that this whole concept of helicopter parents who are quick to rescue their kids. And, you know, we've become a nation, and I'll rant here for a minute, <laughs> where everybody is, quote, fragile. You know, people get triggered. People, you know, that you have to create this environment where they won't be triggered. And I think that it's just life and being triggered is a choice, you know, and you can try to shut down all the triggering in the world and it won't eliminate all of it. And so the trigger happens because it's triggering a story. Well, how about change the story? You know, and I think that's the gift that we can give to our kids. Beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing.
0: At some point, okay, we might just have to do a part two with Michael because there's so many other questions I want to ask. You know, because I know that you know one of the things that we talked about before we hit record was how much easier it is, oftentimes, as an entrepreneur, to be more intentional in your business, yes, than it is in your family. And you even said, you know, there was a period of time where I, all my creativity, all my energy, you know, so at some point in time, maybe I'd love to ask you what how that changed or how that shifted for you because I know there's so many entrepreneurs that feel that same way of. I want to make sure an entrepreneur said it best. I want to make sure my family gets what's best of me, not what's left of me.
2: Yes. Love that.
0: Um, But I just want to thank you for coming on, Michael. And and look, I I would encourage every family that's listening to go purchase Michael and Megan's book, mind your mindset, every principle that is in that book. That is amazing from (laughs) out there versus in here to the narrator, to the stories we choose to believe applies to every aspect of your life, especially in a family. And if, and if as families, we can start to take control of our minds individually and collectively and change the narrative and change the stories we tell ourselves, it has a generational consequences for the better and, and impact that can bless future posterity that you'll never even meet that gets set in motion by
2: your mindset. So true.
0: Where, where is the best place for them to go, Michael, to learn more about the book and purchase it?
2: Yeah. If you go to mindyourmindsetbook.com. And it'll give you all the different retailers, you know, from Amazon to everybody else and go right to that page. But more importantly is once you buy the book, you can come back with a receipt and collect the bonuses that we're making available, including the audio version of the book, including a tool that we call the self-coaching tool. Mm -hmm. So that this correction to your mindset can become almost instinctual, but you can coach yourself through any situation where you're frustrated or feel disempowered and come up with a better story. And then there's one other thing that we offer there, and I can't remember it, but there's there's some bonuses. Good stuff. Yeah, it's
0: amazing. Yeah, and those bonuses alone are worth you know probably thousands of dollars if someone was just to buy that. So yeah, take advantage of that. Uh, MindYourMindsetBook dot com. Michael, thanks for coming on today. It was a pleasure having you. Thank
1: you.
2: Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Melissa.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Family Brand Podcast. To say thank you, we have something really awesome we'd love to share with you.
0: You know, we often hear from families who will tell us that they just feel so overwhelmed